Thank you for tuning in to a Centerpoint Church message. Our mission is to help you take the next step in your relationship with God. We hope this message achieves that and inspires you to both grow in your faith and live it out today. Enjoy! Well, if you've never been here before, welcome. My name is Aaron Master. I'm the pastor out here. Our mission here is to help you take the next step in your relationship with God. We do here what every good Christian church should do, which is to help you connect with God in a worshipful way and help you grow in your relationship with Him. Our style, it just might be a bit different than what you're used to, but we want you to know we're still true to the Bible. We take God very seriously here, and we want to guide and encourage you in your weekly walk with Him. Right now, we're in our third week of our series that we've been calling Intersections. And in this series, we are looking at the intersection of someone who is dedicated to following Jesus, what we're all about here, and then comparing that to both other religions and other Christian denominations. Week one, we talked about Judaism or Jewish beliefs. Week two, we looked at various Christian denominations. And then this week, we're looking at Islam or Muslim beliefs. Y'all might be here, you're like, wait, what? You serious? Like, what kind of church is this now? Or maybe, maybe you're looking at your spouse right now and you're like, why did we come today? Like, seriously, if that's you, slow down, hang in there for a second. I do hope that you do learn a bit about Islam today. But most importantly, in that learning, you have a greater appreciation for Jesus. Because my main goal today is, in our comparison, is for you to be reminded of some of the Christian practices that people can do to experience closeness to God. Because in all honesty, wouldn't you like that? Wouldn't you like that? Or don't you want more of that to be closer to God? To have a greater, more intimate, more connected relationship with God? One where you really feel his presence and are reminded of it. I don't know about you, but I do. And if you've been feeling distant from God, whether it's for a few weeks, a few months, or maybe even a few years, I want you to know today you are going to leave with some actionable things that you can actually do starting today to reconnect with God. But before we dive in, as I've said each week of this series is, I have a bias. I have a bias here on stage. I'm a Christian and I'm a pastor that's a Christian, so I want you to become a Christian, right? And although I went to seminary, I am no expert when it comes to these other religions. I really do hope to treat them with respect, and when I talk about them, I present them well. But know that I'm going to be far from perfect, and I am no expert with these. With that, though, uh, we're going to dive in. And again, for this series, we've looked at Judaism, we looked at Christianity and Christian denominations, and today we're looking at Islam. Does anyone know what these three have in common? Anybody? How about this? I'll give you a little hint. What do these two have in common? Serena and Venus? How about this one? But not, but not the Kardashians. How about this one, though? Like, they have a commonality here, Leah and Luke. Can you see anything yet? Oh, here's the next one. But not stepbrothers. All right, so there's some similarities, but not. Any guesses? Well, what they are is they have the same father. These three religions, they have the same father. Well, sort of in our situation. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam are all what's called an Abrahamic religion or a religion stemming from Abraham. Abraham, he's kind of seen as the father of each of these faiths. He's someone who listened followed and pursued God and had a family or essentially his family became a church in pursuit of God. That's what a lot of the Old Testament is. 
If you haven't heard Abraham's story before or you're not super familiar with him, I want to give you a a few-minute rundown on Abraham. It's one that we're going to refer to all morning long. Abraham, he's in the Old Testament. He's an Old Testament person who shows up in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And God speaks to Abraham, and he says this, Leave your natives and head to a land I'll show you and promise you. And then he says, I will bless you, those who bless you, and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Well, Abraham was 75 at that time. Well, I'm 75. I'm not planning on going to some distant land. The distant land I want to go to is Fort Lauderdale. I want to go to, like, the beach, right? At 75, Abraham's getting saying, leave your natives, go somewhere new, is what God says to Abraham. That's not really what I want, but that shows Abraham's obedience to God. But he goes. He goes to this distant land that God's promised him, and there's some selfishness to it, too, because what Abraham wanted more than anything was lineage. He wanted a family from him and his wife Sarah, specifically a male at that time, which back then would carry your family on. And God says all families will be blessed through him was that promise. Well, Abram or Abraham follows God's lead, getting to different spots, but running into other people and nations until God leads him to a land that's going to be his own. But still, no child. If you look at the scripture, it says this, You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir, is what he says to God. And he states it to God, but God says this back, A son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Well, more time passes, and no child comes. And what happens next is interesting, and it has some big implications for our comparison of Islam and Christianity today. It's in Genesis 16:1 through 3. It says, Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarah said to Abram, The Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abram agreed in Sarah's, to Sarah's proposal. So Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave to her to Abram as a wife. Sarah comes up with this idea on her own, and Hagar, her ser- servant, becomes pregnant. Again, this is ancient. This is back, way, way, way back then. And then what happens next? Verse 5, it says this. Then Sarah said to Abram, This is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms, but now she's pregnant and she, can te- she treats me with contempt. Wait, what? This is your idea. And now you're mad at this? Like, Come on now, this is like the classic fight, I think, of all households. Hopefully, for, like, not for you, like getting a servant pregnant. But when someone, someone, specifically your spouse probably, makes a decision and then they regret it, and somehow it's your fault, right? We've all been there. Maybe it's just me, I don't know. You know what this is showing is this child is coming in the own doing of Sarah and Abraham's works. It's not through God's plan. It's not through the lineage God promises. Well, a child comes. A child comes through Hagar and is named Ishmael. And Abraham's excited, right? But again, it's not through God. This child is not of his lineage with his wife, Sarah. The child came from his servants. Something God said wouldn't be the case. So even in the wrongful action, though, of this, God revisits Abraham. He revisits Abraham and he reseals the promise to him once again, this promise of lineage, of children, of, chi- of countless descendants. Look at it. It's in Genesis 17.1. It says, I am God Almighty, is what God says. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless, and then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. I've got to pause there and just ask you once. 
Have you ever been there before? Like, you've done something in your own doing, wrong, blamed God, but you still feel God chasing after you. It's powerful, right, when you reflect on how God pursues us. But what happens next in our story is this time when God is pursuing Abraham, he wants to seal the deal. He wants to seal the covenant with Abraham. Check out how. It's in Genesis 17, 9 through 10. Then God said to Abraham, Your responsibility is to obey the terms of my covenant. You and all your descendants have this continual responsibility. This is the covenant that you and your descendants must keep. Each male among you must be circumcised. Wait, what? Seriously? In this situation, Abraham's like 100 years old. Me at 100? I'm out. I'm out, right? But before it's deal or no deal... God tells him he is going to have a son through Sarah. It's in Genesis 17, 19. But God replied, No, Sarah, your wife, will give birth to a son for you. You will name him Isaac, and I will confirm my covenant with him and his descendants as an everlasting covenant. As for Ishmael, the son through Hagar, I will bless him also, just as you have asked. I will make him extremely fruitful and multiply his descendants. So Abraham takes his tribe to get circumcised, first off, the scene is gross to think about, but it's intense, and it's serious, and it's a serious, faithful action. God wants his nation set apart to show something is different about them. And this is one of the ways and what definitely made a nation or a lineage different, right? It made them very different. Well, not long after this commitment, it says, Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At this very time, God had promised. Abraham gave him the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And then God continues to use Isaac to be the leader, the leader of his people, the Israelites, the people who were set apart, who we read about all over the Old Testament. So that's Abraham's origin story. All Abrahamic religions, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, they look to Abraham's story. Where things start to differ, though, is the view of Abraham's son. Remember, there's two, Ishmael and Isaac. Muslims believe Ishmael was God's chosen lineage and led to the prophet Muhammad, their prophet Muhammad, who brought their holy book, the Quran. They believe Muhammad was the final prophet and has the final say, whereas Christians believe Isaac is, the, is part of the line of Jesus, and Jesus is the final prophet and has the final say. Islam believes a lot of the Old Testament, some of the New Testament of the Bible. They believe in Jesus as a prophet, but just as a human, and not the way Christians do, and not as highly as they see Muhammad, their prophet, who came 600 years after, Christian, or after Jesus. They believe Christians and Jews have corrupted what we see as our Bible, the Old Testament and New Testament, but they, they see it as a holy book, but whenever it disagrees with their Quran, they see the Quran as superior. So with that, we have some similar beliefs, things like Abraham. It's an Abrahamic religion, but quite a few differences, right? I just want to nerd out with you for two minutes on the basics of Islam so, you're, so you kind of have an idea of what it's all about. As I do this, I want you to listen for some similar religious practices that you maybe know or have heard of through Christianity. 
In Islam, they have two distinct things that Muslims must believe and follow. They have what's called the six articles of faith and the five pillars of Islam. To start the articles of faith, it's this. All Muslims must believe this. They must believe the oneness of God. They must believe in the angels of God. They must believe in the divine revelations, which would be the Quran, the Torah, which is part of the Old Testament Bible, the Gospel, which is some of the New Testament, the scrolls of Abraham, the Psalms of David, a lot of things we see as Scripture. They also must believe in the prophets of God. Prophets were Noah is who they see as a prophet. Moses, Solomon, Jesus. But they add Muhammad as their, one of their prophets. They see them as mortal beings where we see Jesus as divine. And then finally, uh, they believe in resurrection after death on day of judgment. And then the last one is preordination, which means preexistent knowledge and that nothing in existence lies outside of God's control. And then after the Articles of Faith, there's the five pillars of Islam for Muslims that all religious obligations that all Muslims must do. And they are have a belief in God and his prophets. They must pray five times a day. They must have charity or give to charity, 2.5% of all assets they have annually. They must do a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, going to Mecca. And then they must fast. They must fast and practice Ramadan, which means abstaining or not eating food or drink for 30 days, a month-long festival to reflect on when God gave the Quran to, the, to Muhammad. To Muslims, these actions are the things they must do to be holy. And these actions, let's be real for a second, they're pretty serious. They are pretty serious commitments to uphold. Muslims pray five times a day. And not just say, hey God, you're awesome. Like, on their knees, facing a, a certain direction, five times a day. They fast for Ramadan each year, which is fasting for a whole month, from sunup to sundown. And when they fast, they must not drink water, food, even swallow their own spit. That's serious, right? And then Muslims must give to charity. It's mandatory. It's required. Their salvation and forgiveness is dependent on them doing these required things. Their actions and following of this is what they believe God uses to assess on judgment day or the day at the end to decide whether they should be forgiven or whether or not they should have salvation. Now, this entire overview of Islam, you probably see some similarities to Christianity, yet there are some stark differences. Islam and Christianity are not the same. And the reason being is our difference goes back to our key understanding of Jesus, in which what we've talked about throughout this entire series. It's what makes Christianity so much different than any other religion. And, and what it is, is as Christians, we believe Jesus was God's only son, fully human, fully divine, living perfectly on earth. And we believe Jesus' death and sacrifice in our place for our mess-ups, even though he did no wrong, and then rose again, and this act is what saves us. Our acceptance of that and faith in that gives us the gift of grace. It's what saves you and makes you right. We are expected to do nothing except accept that. Our works, our deeds, our prayers, our fasting, our giving, our travel, whatever, they do not earn us right standing with God. But the free gift of grace, Jesus, gives us a grace that saves you, and it's also the same grace that sustains you even in your future mess-ups. 
We've been looking at this whole passage through this whole series. It's in Titus 2, 11 through 12. It says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Christians believe grace is offered to all and it saves us, sustains us in our continual mess-ups, but then it also changes us. That grace changes us. Whereas Muslims believe the pillars, following the articles, and good behavior are required for salvation. Can you see the differences? Can you see it? Again, works in action-based versus the acceptance of a gift of grace through faith. But again, in this series, we're not focusing on the differences, but the intersections. The intersections. And the intersection I want to focus on for the rest of our time today is some practices all three of the Abrahamic religions do to bring closeness to God. There's the three, three of the Islam pillars, fasting, prayer, and giving. They're also core practices that are inherently Abrahamic or things that God prompts people to do in the Bible. For a Muslim, they are mandatory. But for a Christian, they are holy practices and tools that you can use to connect with God. It seems, if you look at Islam from afar, it's just way more serious with these things, and they kind of do these things maybe even a bit better than some of us or some Christians. I mean, I get it, right? Like, they're doing it because it's what makes them right. But what if we're doing it to try and just get close to God? Could these serious Christian practices help? Personally, I'm not normally a super serious person, at least not all the time, personally. Uh, I'm I'm serious about a few things. I'm going to share a little bit with you what I'm serious about. I'm serious about weekend time. What we have time for on our weekend, I am planning to the T. Like, make sure that we have, like, uh, some, some, some connections with other people. Make sure we maximize the time in the morning. We have some free time, some relaxing time. I maximize it. Everything counts. I'm serious about our time on the weekend. Same thing with vacation. I got to make the biggest bang for our buck. Like, we got to make sure that we check out this and do this and this, and then we have enough to do that. Yep, okay, so we're going to max out our vacation time. Bikes, I love cycling, uh, so I got to maximize the time of, like, making sure I get the best bang for our, our dollar. And we have multiple bikes in our household. We have a road bike, mountain bike, a fat bike, and then my wife has some, and then my daughter has some. We have, like, ten bikes, yeah. Um, but I'm serious about bikes. I know a lot about bikes. Same thing with money, even. Money, I'm pretty serious about. I want to figure out what's the best bang for my dollar. I want to maximize things. I'm serious about these things. And because I'm serious about these things, I'm intentional about them. I think about them. I strategize and I prioritize them. What if we did that with some of the acts of faith that can bring us closer to God? What if we prioritize them? If we go back to our father of faith, Abraham, right? I don't think I need to remind you what he did, but he was pretty serious about what God told him to do, right? Again, our action and our commitment to things, they don't save us. It's not what saves us. But what if we followed through on some of the things God says is holy for us to do? I mean, Jesus' way of living, his prompting was for us to follow his ways and live in a particular way, to align with that holy living. Not because it's what saves us, but because he knew it's what's best for us. So let's look at these three common practices that all Abrahamic religions do that can bring us closer to God. The first one is prayer. Prayer. 
Prayer is a basic part of the Christian faith. To remove all churchy language about prayer or understanding prayer, prayer is you having a conversation with God. We are to pray to God all the time. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, it says this, Pray without ceasing, without stopping. It's something that we can see people continuously do in the Old Testament. Daniel, Daniel, a big prophet of the time, he, he prayed three times a day. He got down on his knees and prayed. Uh, David, a, a big king of the Old Testament, he prayed consistently. That's, he wrote the book of Psalms, or a lot of the Psalms in there. There are a lot of his prayers. Jesus prays a ton. Jesus withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. And he teaches us to pray. He wants us to pray. Check it out how he teaches us. It's in Matthew 6, 7. It says, when you pray, don't babble on as the, as the Gentiles do or people who don't follow God. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. Pray like this. And then it's the Lord's Prayer. You've probably have heard of it before. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. It's the Lord's Prayer. He teaches us how to pray. We did a whole message on that of how there's actually application of the Lord's Prayer. You should check that out. It was from this past summer. But prayer is meant to be a conversation with God. It's a two-way street with God. And the one I'm guessing you struggle with, as I do, is the listening part. There's talking and there's hearing and listening from God. Is your prayer involving both of those? Is it just talking, or do you listen at times? I have kind of a fun video that shows how easy talking is versus listening. Check it out. So I go on a lot of first dates, and okay. I tend to be super, super talkative, super chatty. I lead the conversation, ask all the questions. So my problem is, is that I'm still single, and I'm basically leave the leave dinner leave whatever and they know everything about me and i know nothing about them um what do i do to stop like leave, let there be silence in the conversation and not have it be so like awkward and be comfortable with silence and basically just not babble the whole time no see first see stop calling it silence it's, it's called listening yeah <laughs> I can, tell, I can tell this is a new concept. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't no, listen no, no. well. Yeah, you don't, you, don't, you don't like to listen? Well, I mean, I'll listen, but like you have to have something to say, like something good to say. Yeah, but if you're talking, if I, even if I have something good to say, if I can't get it in. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. To the light bulb, just go on. Did you? you might not know a lot about God. You might not feel close to God. You might not be hearing God in prayer because you're talking too much. Not letting him speak or only letting him squeak something in in your one or two minute prayer that we do a day is not really what we see Jesus do or people in the Old Testament do. And it's not what we see Muslims do either. But instead, what if we're patient silent, listening, and consistent with our prayers. Islam, it prays five times a day. That's serious and dedication. Do you have that type of dedication to God in your prayers? To pray five times a day, you have to rearrange your whole day around God. Isn't that exactly what we're supposed to do? Have God be the center of your life? For you, maybe you need to get back to the practice of prayer and have it be a more serious part of your life. 
What would that look like for you to do that? Do you need to be more strategic about it, to be more serious about it by maybe planning it or scheduling it or putting it on a to-do list? If that's you, because it's me, it's me, I want to give you some real practical, like a real practical list of things you can try. For you, maybe you need to pray via text. I'm pretty good at texting. Maybe I just need to like have like a little text thread with like a ran- not a random number, but maybe some sort of some sort of like page or note or document. Maybe I'm writing it so that I'm actually saying my prayers and sp- and having time doing that. Maybe I need to set an alarm. My Apple Watch it says like breathe uh, like every once in a while, and when I see that, I pray. Maybe when you get a winter warning about a squall, maybe that's your warning that you need to pray. I don't know. Pray with others. Maybe you need accountability with like a, a family member, a spouse, a friend at work, that like you just know that you pray all the time, every day with this person, and there's accountability. Maybe you need to remove yourself and like just get to a space where you, there's no distractions. Maybe you need to do this. You, you need to like take your phone and have like your mom throw it in the pool and then freak out, right? I think every teen just cringed right now, right? For real though, maybe you need to get rid of your phone, lock it somewhere, like put it in a room for just 10 minutes, get away, actually listen uninterrupted, right? Islam prays five times a day. Although that's not mandatory for us as Christians, what if we just took prayer more seriously though? Could that change our perspective, our mood, our, the outcome of things even? Maybe. Could that, could that make us closer to God? Absolutely, Right? Another thing that's closely tied to prayer that Islam does a bit better than us, but it's the second thing that we can see that Jesus modeled and is a Christian practice, is fasting. It's fasting. What is fasting? Fasting is the willful refraining from eating and sometimes drinking. Now, I don't know if you saw like the Planners commercial uh, over the Super Bowl. Who watched the Super Bowl? Anybody? Come on now. Who watched the Super Bowl? All right, a few of you. Okay. Who's a little disappointed in the commercials? Who's a little disappointed in the games? Who's a little disappointed in the hat? No, we're not going there. We're not going there. Okay. Uh, But there was a a commercial, the Planters commercial. I'm going to show it to you in a second, and they talk about fasting. Check it out. Hey, Kevin. Ken. Oh, yeah. What are you doing? Eating mixed nuts. This is how you eat nuts? Mixing them all together and shoving them in your mouth like an intermittent fasting squirrel? How do you eat nuts? One at a time, like a regular person. This squirrel went from no, not eating to all of a sudden just like slamming, eating mixed nuts all at once. Which I, who eats mixed nuts like all at once? Who eats it one at a time? Wrong answer. Okay, okay. Uh, fasting happens all over scripture. Daniel, again, we talked about him with prayer. Daniel fasted. He, he ate no meat, no wine, for, entered his mouth. He didn't anoint him, himself at all for, full, for a full three weeks. Jesus, he was in 40 days in the desert where he didn't eat at all. It's in Luke 4, 2. For 40 days, being tempted by the devil, he, and he ate nothing during those days. Paul, he fasted when he had this encounter with God. He's a big shot of the, of the New Testament. He wrote a lot of letters. And he, he fasted for three days. While he was without sight, he neither ate nor drank. In all these cases, fast, what they were for, it was the intention to bring the person closer to God to have more of a reliance on God. Right after Jesus taught his disciples to pray, we we looked at that, he also taught them to fast. 
He taught them the fast. Uh, let's, let's read about it. It's in Matthew 6, 16. If it's right after the prayer. It says, And when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do, for they try to look miserable and disheveled, so people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, that is the only reward they will ever get. But when you fast, comb your hair, wash your face, then no one will notice that you are fasting except your Father who knows what you do in private, and your Father who sees everything will reward you. It's saying, do your fasting in private. Don't, don't, don't try to like be like, oh, I'm doing this whole fast thing. Wow, it's so amazing. It's, it's actually do it in private. Have it be with just between you and God because the reliance is on God. What fasting is not, it's not a way to suffer for God. It's not this new fad diet that's, that you can brag about with others. It's not a spiritual practice that demonstrates like how righteous you are. It's not something that impacts your salvation or forgiveness. It's not a way that like that of trying really hard spiritually to get God to do something for you. It's not the same thing as repenting from sin. It's none of these things. But what it is, is it's a serious Christian practice, again, not mandatory, but it has some positive effects to bring you closer to God. And how fasting does that is through your hunger, your thirst, your withdrawal pains that you experience in a fast, they're meant to be reminders for you to pray to go to God instead of just giving in to your body's natural cravings. Because let's be real. How many times do you naturally reflect on God during the day? How many times do you naturally reflect on how much you want food, coffee, or a drink? Right? I'll tell you from my own experience, a lot. Way more than I go to God. I, go, I think about food way more than I think about God. Uh, our life groups recently... Our life groups are about groups of 10 to 12 people that get together, study the Bible, and they just did a fast this week, a 24-hour fast. And uh, the reason was, is to have this experience to go to God in our hunger pains, in our caffeine pains, in our, our thirst pains of some sort. I also participated, and I found myself thinking about Cheetos. I found myself thinking about chocolate, a beer, Starbucks, dried mangoes from Costco. They're amazing. I was thinking about those all day long. Beef and cheese. I mean, those are just snacks for that, for one day, the 24-hour fast. Don't even get me started about meals. I was thinking about meals all, all day long. But every time I thought about these things during the fast, instead of going to get them or going to eat them, I prayed. I prayed. And let's just say Jesus and I spent a lot of time together that day. We spent a lot of time in those 24 hours. We almost had 70 people or so in our life groups uh, this session, and almost everyone who did this fast said it was a powerful experience for them. Sure, there were a lot of prayers like, hey God, I'm hungry, this hurts, would you help me out? But in that alone, it brings you an appreciation for what you have and what you have God to thank for in your life. Let's just say I have this newfound appreciation for the basics. I think I pray every time I have a cup of coffee these days because it's like, oh, this is so amazing. Thank you, God. I have appreciation. But what this shows, though, is fasting brings us closer and makes us more attuned to God's involvement in our life. Fasting realigns our dependence on God. Fasting brings even moments of compassion and understanding what others go through who maybe don't have what we do. Islam, they practice a month-long fast called Ramadan. It's from sunup to sundown fast for 30 days, and its attempt is to bring them closer to God. It's a serious practice that they're required to do. For us, fasting could be a serious, powerful thing that gets you closer to God. It doesn't save you, but again, don't you want to be close to God? 
Where or how could you fast to have an opportunity of closeness with God in your life? Coming up, there's a popular Christian tradition called Lent. What Lent is, is it's a time where people fast from something. could be food or something else. It's not mandatory, but why people do it is to partner alongside Jesus' 40 days fast of being in the desert, or time where he was tempted before his ministry. It was a fast of 40 days without food. The practice today, it's meant to reflect on God and to, to, to have that parallel with Jesus. But you reflect on God by giving something up. This year it starts March 2nd, so it's coming up quick. For Jesus, it was a time he had to rely on God in private and rely on God to provide for him, to get him through during those 40 days. Maybe you want to practice Lent. Maybe, that, maybe that's the thing you need prompting for, to get closer to God. Maybe you want to give something up so that each time you crave or desire that specific thing, you go to God. It could be a particular food. It could be some a lot of food. It could be coffee or alcohol, whatever it is. Maybe 40 days is a lot for you, and you just want to try for 24 hours or even just maybe a few hours stretch. Maybe you want to fast from something you do a lot of. Facebook, social media, Netflix, TikTok, unnecessary cell phone time. Maybe you just are going to like remove yourself from that for three hours, and that's your fast. Commit to give something up, and each time you crave it, you go to God. You go to God. It's a serious practice that can bring you closer to God. The last thing that we see Islam practices that has Christian roots is, is giving and giving to charity. Uh, in, <clears throat> in Islam, it's mandatory to give 2.5% of their accumulated wealth for the will of God. It's to acknowledge that everything we own belongs to God. That's why they do it. There's a similar practice in Christianity, Old Testament and New Testament. They talk about how followers are to give 10% to God. Deuteronomy 14.22, it says, You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. A tithe is 10%, so I guess it's cheaper to be a Muslim, maybe. In all seriousness, though, giving in Christianity is not necessary for salvation or forgiveness. It's not necessary. But it is a serious act that can bring you closer to God. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of uptight about money. When it comes to money at home, I'm uptight. You heard I'm calculated and strategic about it. At home, I break down our monthly budget often. I probably analyze and strategize like how we can get cash back from certain things or our spending. Every other day, I think I look at our accounts. So when I give, when I give to, to God, it's like, ouch. Like, that's a lot. Like, I know that money could be spent on other things, right? I'm not saying this to brag, but it's a sacrifice, and it's one that draws me closer to God because I'm trusting he's going to take care of me. I'm a bit of a hoarder with, with money, too, and I'm like, we could use that. We could use that money for this thing. Or like, what if one day we're in a pinch, and like, we're, we're, we're not like in the stable spot? What if, what if we're not in a good place? We could use that money. But the act of giving is a sacrifice of trust. It's bringing closeness. When you give God some of your finances, you're close to him in your sacrifice. But with all that, you also have ownership in what God is doing in the world. God can do things without money, right? Absolutely. But money does help reach people. And when you see that your funds help people start a relationship with God, or you see that your funds help people's life change through a church or a group, or you see that your funds provide kids or missions or whatever it is, you get to own that. You contributed to that. 
Maybe for you, that's a practice you need to do or experience for closeness to God. You want ownership for the impact God is doing in the world financially. If that's you, just try once. Maybe See if it brings closeness. Maybe try 1%. See if it creates an owner-like bond for you that you're more excited about and more aware of the ministry that's happening within the world through your support. Again, giving, it's not a mandatory thing for Christians. or It's not a thing for salvation or forgiveness. But it's a practice the Bible pushes us to do to better align with God. As I wrap up today, we learned a lot about Islam, we learned about Abraham, and we have a few common practices that we can see between us all. But in that seriousness of looking at what Muslims do and believe, what seriousness has been prompted in you today? For you today, maybe it's, it's just in the fact that you've never realized that grace of Jesus is what saves you and sustains you. Nothing more is necessary of you. You simply need faith in who Jesus is and what he's done for you. For you, maybe today you realize you want to start a relationship with him. You want to say, yes, I want to follow you, God. Yes, I, I want that. I want that forgiveness. I want to accept your gift. And you can say that in your head and your heart. It doesn't have to be a fancy prayer or anything like that. But just say that to God, and you're on your journey of being a Christian. For you, maybe you want to practice one of the serious acts or the serious practices in attempt for closeness with God. One that's seen in all of the Abrahamic religions. For you, maybe it's prayer. You want to be more consistent more of a listener. For you, maybe it's some sort of fast or abstinence from something for a while, a few hours from your phone, from food for 24 hours. Maybe you practice Lent. Or finally, maybe for you it's giving. Maybe it's giving. Maybe you need to do a sacrifice where you depend on God. You give to God. Maybe, maybe you need to have ownership of something financially so that you feel connected and see the miracles God's doing through that. I'm going to pray that we act on one of these this week. If you want that too, you can pray with me right now. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for giving us uh, just an example of how we can see through the Abrahamic religions that there are some serious things we can do to have this closeness to you. God, we pray that as we're figuring out how to embrace that closeness, God, I just pray that you prompt us to do one of those this week, whether it's prayer or, or fasting or giving. I just pray that you have us follow through on whatever that maybe is so that we can have this closeness to you. We want to feel your presence, God. So I just pray that you have that happen and prompt us to do that this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.